0: If you would, turn with me as we hear from God to Second Chronicles, and we'll begin in the 34th chapter. And starting in verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, And the king went up to the house of Yahweh, and all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people, from the greatest to the least. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of Yahweh. Then the king stood in his place, and he made a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh, to keep his commandments and his testimonies, his statutes, with all his heart and with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant written in this book. Moreover, He made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand with him so that the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah removed all the abominations from all the lands belonging to the sons of Israel and made all who were present in Israel to serve Yahweh their God. Throughout his lifetime, they did not turn from following Yahweh God of their fathers. Then Josiah celebrated the Passover. The Passover to Yahweh in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover animals on the fourteenth day of the first month. And he set the priests in their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of Yahweh. And he also said to the Levites who taught all Israel and who were holy to Yahweh, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon the son of David, king of Israel, built, and it will be a burden on your shoulders no longer. Now serve Yahweh your God and his people Israel." And prepare yourselves by your father's households in your divisions, according to the writing of David, king of Israel, and according to the writing of his son Solomon. Moreover, stand in the holy place, according to the sections of the father's households and of your brothers, the lay people, and according to the Levites, by division of a father's household. Now slaughter the Passover animals, sanctify yourselves, and prepare for your brothers to do according to the word of Yahweh by Moses." And Josiah contributed to the lay people, to all who were present, flocks of lambs and kids, all for the Passover offerings, numbering 30,000 plus 3,000 bulls. These were from the king's possessions. His officers also contributed a free will offering to the people, the priests and the Levites, Hilkiah and Zechariah and Jehiel. The officials of the house of God gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 from the flocks and 300 bulls. Conaniah also, and Shemaiah, and Neth- Nethanel, his brothers, and Hashabiah, and Jael and Jehoshabad, the officers of the Levites, contributed to the Levites for the Passover offering, 5,000 from the flocks and 500 bulls. So the service was prepared, and the priests stood at their stations, and the Levites by their divisions according to the king's command. And they slaughtered the Passover animals while the priests sprinkled the blood received from their hand. The Levites skinned them. Then they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the sections of the father's households of the lay people to present to Yahweh. As it is written in the book of Moses, they did this also with the bulls. So they roasted the Passover animals on the fire according to the ordinance. They boiled the holy things in pots and kettles and pans and carried them speedily to all the lay people. And afterward, they prepared for themselves and for the priests, because the priests, the sons of Aaron's, were offering the burnt offerings and the fat until night. Therefore, the Levites prepared for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron. The singers, the sons of Asaph, were also at their stations, according to the command of David, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, the king's seer. And the gatekeepers at each keep did not have to depart from their service, because the Levites, their brothers, prepared for them." So all the service of Yahweh was prepared on that day to celebrate the Passover, to offer burnt offerings on the altar of Yahweh according to the command of King Josiah. Thus the sons of Israel who were present celebrated the Passover at that time in the feast of unleavened bread seven days. And there had not been a celebrated Passover like it in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet, nor had any of the kings of Israel celebrated such a Passover as Josiah did with the priests. The Levites, all Judah and Israel were present, and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the eighteenth year of Josiah's reign, this Passover was celebrated. We'll read next out of Luke chapter twenty two. beginning in verse 14 and when the hour had come he reclined at the table and the Apostles with him and he said to them I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for I say to you I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God and when he had taken a cup and given thanks he said take this and share it among yourselves for I say to you I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this as a memorial to me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began discussing among themselves which one of them it might be who is going to do this thing. And there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. But let him who is greatest among you become as the youngest, And the leader as the servant. For who is greater and the one who reclines at the table, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You would turn with me now to the back of the bulletin, and we'll read together from Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, in your light do we see light. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of the same essence as the father through him all things were made for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven he became incarnate by the holy spirit and the virgin mary and was made human he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection from the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen? Amen? Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for bringing us into your presence and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've placed it above your name. And we thank you that we know you by your word. We grow in the grace of the Lord of the Lord Jesus Christ by your word. And so now we ask that you would speak to us and that you would send forth your spirit to Illumine us to understand what you say and to apply your word as only you can do in the hearts and lives of each person here. Bless our time that you may be glorified in Christ's name, amen. Well, guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Jehovah's, one of those oldies but goodies, and it's based on the Old Testament cosmology. When you work your way through the old testament of course you have to think symbolically if you don't think symbolically you're uh, adrift in a sea and you're not quite sure where you'll end up the language is symbolic as one writer said that's the special language of god now that doesn't mean that it doesn't have meaning of course it has meaning But just as we discover, for example, when we read about the sea, then we know the sea becomes a symbol of the Gentiles. When we read about the land, the earth, we know that the land, the earth becomes a symbol about Jewish people. And so in prophetic passages and apocalyptic passages, we are so much helped if we think that way. Well, as we work our way through the Old Testament, of course, this is moving from Genesis to the flood, to Abraham, to the Exodus, to the Passover, to the meeting at Mount Sinai and the making of the covenant whereby Israel became God's people and then to the building of the tabernacle with the worship and the tabernacle is built to look like land and heaven. And then the entrance into Jordan, and so you end up crossing two seas to get there, the Red Sea, and you make your way through the wilderness, and you cross the Jordan, which is a picture of the waters below and the waters above. And if you're going to go to heaven, you've got to go through the waters above. So Jordan becomes a picture of the heavens. And in, in uh, excuse me, Canaan, and in the land of Canaan, the promised land, then eventually, when Israel enters a permanent structure is built for the name of yahweh and he puts his name there and this land with jerusalem in the middle and a temple built there becomes the center of the universe of course there is no temple there now and so it's not the center of the universe and we're going to look at a little progression today in what happens if we think carefully. Well, I was uh, very unhappy with last week, so you know, I decided to cover a little territory a second time. We'll see if I'm unhappy at the end of this week. I know uh, a lot of you don't like to read or don't have much time to read, and I hope all of you are taking time to read your Bible. There is a whole plethora of information out there about the Bible, in terms of books, or nowadays in terms of podcasts or on television or on the radio or lectures you can buy all of all of that stuff is there and if you choose wisely it's helpful quite helpful in fact i submit to you that you will not come to understand the bible as one could without reading some outside sources and after all reading is no different than coming to a sermon because when you come to a sermon and tell the preacher's reading from the Bible, you're listening to a man talk. Same as picking up a book. So lots of men put their sermons into books and send out books. The problem is then you realize quickly, you know, when you have your Bible and you've got it open, you're looking through and you're interpreting, asking the Lord for help and you have your thoughts in your head, that's, uh, that's uh, in one sense easy. Now, that is, I don't mean it's easy to understand the Scriptures. In fact, when you look at a lot of passages in Second Chronicles, you wonder, what in the world is this here for? And God tells us that every word of his is inspired, and it's profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, tr- instruction, training in righteousness, that the man of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And uh, this book, again, is, well, it's so infinite that not one of us is going to capture it. Well, it's, uh, you know, I lived in a pretty narrow world for, uh, oh, the first 20 years of being in McKinney, pretty pretty narrow. We here at McKinney Bible Church have the truth. That was my narrow world. Then, uh, I don't know how it happened. My brain began to open up. And I realized, you know, the church is a lot bigger than a particular denomination, a particular local church. But then it introduces this huge problem. And the huge problem is, well, I mean, we let's just say we're evangelical we are here at this church we're evangelical and so if we just scoop all around the world thinking about all the people who believe the gospel and i have no idea how many that is i suspect it's much larger than we think i have grown to be like david who when he sinned had three options and he chose the option to be disciplined by the Lord because the Lord has compassion and mercy. And I'm afraid when we judge, we lack compassion and mercy and we come back to our narrow world and if people don't quite agree with us, then we're just ready to write them off. But when you expand, which this is the Lord's doing, one cannot deny it people are coming to faith because of books and podcasts and all kinds of stuff it's the lord's doing but when you expand and you listen to somebody else then it gives you trouble it gives you trouble and we're going to see this week that it opens a door of trouble that is bothersome and sometimes quite depressing now you can shove the depression away, and you can shove the bothersome enough away if you just live in your own little narrow world and think, hey, I don't know about everybody else, but I'm right. And you guys should believe that, I am right. Uh, I think I said this before, I've said it to different people. John Fossilino introduced us to a Credenda Agenda article uh, years ago in a men's group probably was about 1995 and it was entitled you always think you're right and over 40 years i've sat in my office and talked to people and people say that when they when they they ask a question i give an answer they don't like it they say well the problem with you craig is you always think you're right well you know what so do you because nobody spouts out of their mouth intentionally at least you know, sane people. Don't spout out of their mouth intentionally what's wrong. Hey, let me tell you what's wrong. I, 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 I know this is wrong in me, but I want you to believe it. No, we, we, we do what we think is right. That's the theme of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. He thought he was right, but he turned out to be wrong. And I hope all of us know good and well, however right we are, there is probably a whole lot more wrong because we're finite. We can't think through everything clearly. We can't keep it all held together. Well, so here we are, uh, what a strange introduction to Second Chronicles chapter 34. And Second Chronicles chapter 34 and 35 are just two lovely chapters about Josiah. And Josiah gets the approbation, unlike any other king, he's the greatest. And he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of God with his father David, and he didn't turn to the right, and he didn't turn to the left. He is one fantastic king. But of course, there's no perfect king. So even though David's this man who says, well, he's got a heart that's right towards God, yet we know the failures of David, his lust, his murder, his deception to hide, and his pride in numbering the troops to say, what a great king I am. We know that was David, and yet he's called a man after God's own heart. And of course, that gives us encouragement. Because if you're, if you're a, a person who thinks uh, critically of yourself, and I hope you do, you can name off a whole bunch of things that aren't right that maybe no one else even knows. Well, of course, the deal is God does know. Well, here in Second Chronicles, we have some markers in Josiah's life. So in verse 3, for example, of chapter 34... In the eighth year of his reign, while he was a youth, he began to seek God, the God of his father David and in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of its high places and that goes on to make off this whole list, so he becomes king at. Eight years old. And in the eighth year of his reign, now he's 16 years old. 16. And he does something Saul wouldn't do and many kings didn't do. It's a key word in Chronicles. We've seen it. He sought the Lord. Well, in seeking the Lord... In the 12th year of his reign now he's 20 years old he decides it's time to go out and clean things up and you see that whole list and we've talked a little bit about it of all the things he purged the land from and then down in verse 8 it says now in the 18th year of his reign when he had purged the land and the house he sent a group of people, to go repair the house. So now he's, now he's 26 years old. And you know all that's going to be said can't happen in one year. And so if you, it, maybe you don't even think about that when you're reading it. But if you go pick up a couple of commentaries, they'll make sure you know it and I'll also make sure you know that second kings chapter 22 and 23 don't agree on everything here it's listed differently than they have their purposes and their reasons for writing and it's hard for us to figure out the sequence but at least in the record here everything that's left in josiah's life uh down to the section end in, in chapter 35 verse 19 takes place in the 18th year of his reign. He's now 26. He's just a young man. Just a young man. And so he goes to, he sends people to repair the house, the temple. And uh, they have collected money as they're going around, not just in Judah and Jerusalem, but also into the north. This is a reunification of Just this idolatrous Northland with, well, the South's been pretty idolatrous in the last 50 years too, but in much better shape. Have you ever thought to yourself, you know, I'll bet you, I'll bet you one day the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church is going to come together. ever thought that? If you don't think that way, your God's too small. Because look what happens here. Josiah goes to a reunification, bringing the north in. Well, they've already been thrown over, and so it's a smaller group of people, but he, he includes them in what he's doing. Now, of course, he's not accepting their idolatrous practices. He's wiping those out. And by the time we get done today, we're going to see that, oh, when they come into the covenant that Josiah made, he makes them serve the Lord. And they serve the Lord all the days of Josiah's life. Well, it happens to be if we take this 18th year of his reign, well, he reigned 31 years, so there's only 13 more years left. And so all the days of Josiah for 13 years judah jerusalem and these northern tribes are serving yahweh you think that could happen with the roman catholics and the protestants sometimes we think the roman catholics are just the nasty ones when the protestants have just as many problems and just as many false doctrines there needs to be a purging well we have a king He's not Josiah who can do just that. Anyway, so uh, Josiah sends these people out and they go around collecting money. We've talked about that in the past. There's a method by which this is done and they bring it back and it's given to the supervisors and the workers and they begin to work and they're they're getting their work done. And then uh, Hilkiah is in the temple and he finds, uh, this is an inference now, can't prove it, but just given the text, he finds some money that was hidden that uh, his predecessors, or, or the king's predecessors, would have taken it if they knew it was there. It's hidden. And in searching out that, and finding that money, he discovers a book in there. And that book is the book of the law by Moses. Now, commentators over here say that's just Deuteronomy. I lean a little bit that way, but I wouldn't go to the stake for it. And commentators over here say, no, the book of the law means all the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It could be. But the focus of what's said happens to be on deuteronomy it doesn't happen to be on abraham's life or anything like that although that is part of the law part of the torah and he finds this book and he shows it to the scribe of josiah and the scribe of josiah brings it back and he gives a report all that you've been asking your servants to do it's all being done and by the way hilkiah found this book now so notice we're in year 18. now there have been some good things going on But from the first eight years of Josiah's reign, he's just living the way things are. And then he seeks the Lord, and he matures, and he matures, and he matures. When's the maturing stop? Well, for all of us, it stops at death. And then there's instantaneous maturity but I hope that's the trajectory all of us are on and I point that out because the the author has given us special note to follow the trajectory of Josiah's life and what he's up to and I want to remind you that the church is huge And the evangelical church is huge and there are lots of people who don't disagree and they're at different stages in their Christian growth and we can become very snippy, critical and point the finger and not do what Jesus says. Take the log out of your own eye. So everybody around the world that's in the church, that is, I don't care what denomination they are. I'm just speaking evangelical now. They are our brothers and sisters. If we'd have been under King Josiah in the first years of his reign, we would have been very critical. But a young lad matures into a teenage boy matures to the age that one can go fight in the army in Israel, matures six years beyond that, and just some astounding things happen. So, Shafan the scribe, comes and reads this book to him. The word read, well, sometimes you should translate it that way, but it's not basically what the word means. It's a word that means cry out, call out. And so the sense is, as this scribe is, let's just say he's reading Deuteronomy for fun, okay? We'll say it's Deuteronomy. And uh, that would take all of us some time to read. As he's reading it, he's not monotone. He's not quiet. He is crying out. Why? Because... This is Yahweh, God's word. And our ears need to prick right up and listen. And Josiah listens. And Josiah, well, he understands as he's listening that Jerusalem himself, they're in sad shape under the curses of Deuteronomy because The fathers up to his day have not served Yahweh and done according to his word. He's afraid. And so he gets a delegation to go find the prophetess to verify what does Yahweh want? What should we do? But in all of that, as he hears this, he has what's called a tender heart. It's soft. He hears God talk. You shall not lust. And he's pricked. And he's sad. Well, of course, in this case, it's huge. And what does he do? He tears his clothes. Now, that's a sign of grief, but it's a lot more than a sign of grief, it's a sign of I've been exposed. You see, the word of God is sharp and it pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit, thoughts and intents, and it opens up a man or a woman and makes them naked in the sight of God. And when you're exposed before God and you know it, what's left but to tremble? He had a tender heart. And so the delegation goes to the prophetess, that. and the prophetess says, well, this is what's going to happen. It's not going to be reversed, but it's not going to happen in your day because your heart was tender and you tore your clothes and you wept. So Jerusalem And the kingdom is safe as long as you are alive. After you die, it's not safe anymore. Well, so then that brings us, notice how that works, take too much time. That brings us down to chapter 34 and verse 29. I just want to point out some things here. Then the king sent and gathered the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. By the way, elders aren't mentioned since Rehoboam in 2 Chronicles when Rehoboam wouldn't listen to the elders, he listened to the young men. And the king went up to the house of Yahweh and all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites and all the people from greatest to the least and he cried out in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of Yahweh. So now he's got this huge throne And it's important to note who's in the throng. Well, it's elders and it's priests and it's Levites and it's all the men and it's all the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the least to the greatest. In other words, kids are there too. Then the king stood in his place and he made a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant. So, here he is. He's in his place. Now, what does that mean? Well, some of your translations may have it in the margin. If you're sporting an NIV, it might actually be in the text. If you're sporting different translations, you won't see it in his place. The word place and the word pillar are the same root. And we know from following through Chronicles, when something important happens with a king, he stands at the pillar and the pillar of course are the pillars that uh, solomon made that stood on both sides of the of the court to the entrance to the temple and they're 18 cubic feet not feet cubits tall with a five cubit chapter on top of them. they're very tall they're 12 cubits in circumference and on the top are all of these pomegranates that are hanging by ropes so that when the wind blows, you get bong, 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 bong. And at the very top are lilies. And one of these is named Boaz, and the other is named Jachin. One is a priestly pillar, and the other is a kingly pillar. And so what Josiah is doing is he's standing in front of the pillar, and this is a way for Israel to be able to look inside when they cannot go inside the temple because what's in there are pomegranates on the wall and these lilies, and they get a picture of it. It's a visual. But it's more than that. Because the man who's going to come is both priest and king. And there's been a pillar in Israel's history of pillar of fire that's led them all around and this is representative of that pillar and that pillar of fire is the nexus between heaven and earth and these pillars are to represent that here at this temple here at this temple heaven and earth come together this is where you find truth you don't find it somewhere else and lo and behold what was found right in there was the law of moses the truth the words of god to which Josiah listened. And he stood in his place, and he made a covenant before the Lord. And that covenant is all the stipulations. Let's just say, we'll use Deuteronomy. It could be the whole thing, but we'll just use Deuteronomy. All the commandments, the statutes, the testimony, he covenants to do them, just as they're written. So now the king has made a covenant with Yahweh. Then the king stood in his place, and he made a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh and to keep, observe his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul, and if we would add from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and with all his strength to perform the words of the covenant uh, written in this book. Then look at the next line. Moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand... Well, the New American Standard here says stand with him. So, the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of god the god of their fathers now stand is a technical form it's standing it's not it's not the idea that you've been sitting down and now you stand up although that's there it's the idea of taking a place you take the place and where are you taking it you're taking it in the king the king's standing there and he says come stand here where are you standing i'm standing in the covenant so now you have king josiah who is wrapping all of his people into himself in covenant with yahweh god and it says so they 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 did they walked before god he made them serve god and he walked before god all the days of his life now this is a picture first of all remember the two pillars They're picturing the coming of Christ, both priest and king. The nexus between heaven and earth, how are heaven and earth joined? Because of this ladder that the Son of God's come down on to be one of us. And now it's not Josiah who has a covenant people, it's the Son of God who has a covenant people. He's stood in a place and he's brought us all into himself, And we call that the corporate Christ. Now, you may think I'm nuts. But of course, just think. Just think. When you read all the way through the New Testament, we talk about the body of Christ. We're baptized into him. That is, he's the head, and we're all the other parts of Christ. We're in the covenant. Whoa, time to quit, no. And and that's what this is picturing right here. That's quite amazing. Now, I just want you to notice, and you know, you just slosh this around in your brain and see what you think of it. Who's in it? Well, all the people who were there. Who were they? Priests, Levites, elders all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Benjamites, and from the least to the greatest. In Josiah, in covenant with Yahweh, are households, kids, kids the age of some of your kids, brand new babies, they're in the covenant. There is just no way around the language. You cannot get around the language. And that's what happens. And then, when you get over to chapter 35, what comes about? Well, what comes about is in this 18th year, on the 14th day of the first month, we have the Passover. And the Passover is a memorial looking back to Egypt and coming out of Egypt. Now, this Passover is also a Passover that's a coming out of, it's a coming out of idolatry, where the northern tribes and the southern tribes have been so wicked, and they've been delivered out, and now they're having a Passover, and this Passover is, uh, is a strange Passover, and when we think of Passover, by the way, I had us read from Luke chapter 22, uh, I. Howard Marshall has a great book. I can't remember the exact title. It's something like Last Passover, First Lord's Supper. And it's interesting because after the Passover and the slipping away of the law by four, there just isn't Passover. And yet we have Christians today who don't want to leave it behind. What we have is a new Passover, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And that Passover is called the Lord's Supper. Anyway, so they're going to have Passover. And so uh, we don't have time to go through it all, but just a couple of observations. Because when you, when you think of Passover, you, know, you look back to Exodus chapter 14, and so this is, uh, by the way, let me also add quickly, all the traditions about what happens at a Passover do not come from the Bible. They come from the Talmud and the Mishnah. you can't find them in the Bible. Exodus 14 tells you what's in the Bible. The rest of it's tradition. Well, you know, tradition's not all bad. But anyway, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, yes. So if you, I'm getting old, you know. If you look at, uh, if you just read down through, through chapter 35, all the way down to verse 19, you you might just walk away scratching your head, saying, what in the world is going on? So, what it's all about, it's about Josiah rebuilding the temple. Why? Well, because we read it. Because in Verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. The Levites are being told what they're going to do. And, of course, what they're doing is they're following all the divisions that David and Solomon set up. But they're not going to be doing one thing they did do, which was carry the Ark of the Covenant. Now, wait a minute. This is, uh, you know, down in the 600s B.C., the Ark of the Covenant after the temple was built, let's just say it was 950, they weren't carrying it then. What? Are they carrying it now? And the answer is, well, again, inference. You can't prove it. Some commentators say yes, some commentators say no. But if the house of the Lord was violated with idolatry and they put an Asherah in there. A pole a concert to go with yahweh what would you do well if you had some spiritual sense you'd get the ark out of there and i think that's what happened so the levites carried the ark away and god began to wander around now so the nexus between heaven and earth is it's gone it's not there josiah's bringing it back so he uh he organizes, he organizes the priests. Verse one, he organizes the Levites, two through six, and then in seven through nine, he gives lambs and bulls. Officials give lambs and bulls. Levites and others give lambs and bulls all for this great, great Passover. Then in verses 10 through 15, we have a description of what happened at this Passover, and it's not like what you're used to. It is not Exodus chapter 14. Instead, we have the priests who are just accepting blood in containers and splashing it against the altar. We have Levites doing something they never did, skinning animals. We have ascension offerings. No such thing as an ascension offering at a Passover, but here they are. Some people think the ascension means, well, just the entrails of the lambs that are being being sacrificed. But, of course, we have lambs and bulls. And bulls, we've never seen that at a Passover. It's always a lamb or a goat. So something's changed. And, of course, what's changed is, well, when they were in Egypt, they all lived in little houses. And in their little houses, they put the blood around the lintel of their door, and they came walking out through it like being new life, born again. But now they're a massive nation. And you're not allowed to do Passover at home because God said, you know, sacrifice is going to happen where I put my name. So everybody has to come to Jerusalem for Passover. So you have thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, crowding this area. And so what happens? The priests do the splashing of the blood. Now it's not a a door, except it's the bronze altar, which is right at the door to the temple. So it is a door. And then you have Levites skinning, and you have guys roasting the meat. And all of this is being done for the people. The people aren't doing any of it. The Levites are roasting and they're boiling some holy meat and we don't even know what that is because you're not allowed to boil the Passover has to be roasted. And so this huge transition is taking place. And it's a picture. It's a forecast. It's a prophecy. This is what happens in the New Covenant. Because in the Old Covenant, you got a high priest, you got priests, you got Levites, they can all get close. The rest of us got to stay far away. But now, look, these people are right up there and they're eating holy meat, which is reserved for priests only. And when you come down to the New Testament, this whole system is brought to fruition in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices, year by year, which they offered continually, make perfect those Who draw near. In other words, it's the chapter that says, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. So here's this whole nation now in covenant, and they're going to walk in that covenant for 13 years, as long as Josiah is alive. And in that covenant, just take this home and think about it. It should should raise huge questions in your mind. Think about it. In that covenant, there are non-believers, right? It's everybody that that was there. He causes them to stand in, and they're in that covenant. It has little two-year-old girls and little one-year-old boys. It has everybody in that covenant that Josiah made with God, and the people stood in with him. How does that work? They're in covenant. If we move down to Christ, does that mean the same kind of thing? Well, we have one more week on Josiah, so we'll get to answer that question. But think about that. But just look at this tremendous section of Scripture. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And it's about a man, well, Josiah... Maybe your margin has a note. Josiah is taken from the word Yahweh and another root that means a buttress, a support. Yahweh supports. Why is Josiah doing so well? Because he sought the Lord at eight years old and Yahweh is supporting him. And now what he has gained is a reformation of the south and the north brought together in one covenant which they will live out for 13 years until Josiah does something stupid. He doesn't listen to the word of the Lord. Well, it's time to quit, but you see the culmination of this, of course, fits right into coming to the table, because this table is our Passover, and we are in Christ. And we can understand that idness, because the New Testament uses that body metaphor. He's the head and we're parts. And we would say it's a spiritual body, so it is. Nonetheless, we're in Christ. We can understand that from our own families because you have a husband and wife and they have two or three or four or 12 kids and they're all one. They're together. They're in one head. The man is the head of the home. It's a household covenant. And a household covenant grows into a national covenant in Israel. We wouldn't say that today. We would say a household covenant grows into a church-wide covenant. Well, that includes lots and lots and lots of different churches. And like I said at the beginning, then that poses all kinds of problems because there are all kinds of people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who don't think exactly like we do. And where we think we're just absolutely sure on this point, they're over here saying, nope, absolutely sure on the other side of that point. What do you do with that? Well, that's God's mysterious ways. And Proverbs says, it's a glory for God to conceal a matter. The glory of kings is to search it out. We wouldn't do it the way God does it, but that's how he does it. But here we are, one people in Christ, ready to come and praise his name and feed at his table. Stand with me. Lord God, we want to thank you that Jesus Christ came from heaven for our salvation. And we thank you that uh, he became one of us. And he died burying our sins in his body on the tree because he's the covenant head. And he rose from the dead because death couldn't hold him. He had no sin. And he ascended right back at the right hand of the Father where he's now seated. And the nexus between heaven and earth is our king, a physical king, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the book of Chronicles. Use this now as we come to your table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.